Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. And uh, I welcome everybody who is watching this uh, on live streaming and in the future uh, uh, on our recording of this, which will be on our website and YouTube channel for a very long time to come. Uh, for those of you who are new to IWP, we are an independent graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five uh, master's degree programs, a new doctoral program, uh, 17 graduate certificate programs, a faculty of scholar practitioners, and a student body, half of whom are recent college grads and the other half of whom are mid-career professionals. Uh, so if you know anybody who's interested in coming to school and studying our specialty, uh, please let them know. And our specialty, of course, is studying all of the different arts of statecraft, the instruments of national power, and how they are integrated in a whole-of-government integrated strategic approach. Um, it is my great pleasure today to introduce Greg Copley. Uh, Greg is the president of the International Strategic Studies Association based here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I have known Greg for several decades and have been a huge admirer of his uh, for his knowledge of the world and his knowledge of some of the neglected arts of statecraft. Um, he has served as an advisor on strategic issues to a number of different governments and leaders. He has written about 35 different books on, uh, on strategic and uh, geopolitical issues, on history, energy, aviation, and defense. He has been the longtime editor-in-chief of Defense and Foreign Affairs uh, and in uh, the, the associated publications uh, that are part of the, the, his whole publishing empire. Uh, he has been the director of, he is, he is the director of intelligence at the Global Information System, an online encrypted access global intelligence service which provides strategic current intelligence solely to governments. In 2007, he drafted the Grand Strategy Framework document for Australia, uh, entitled Australia 2050. He is the uh, author and editor of the encyclopedia called the Defense and Foreign Affairs Handbook, um, which has become an enormous reference work in, in this field. Uh, I should just add that amongst the people in our business, Greg uh, is one of the only ones who has appreciated uh, some of those instruments of statecraft that we here call the, the arts of, of nonviolent conflict. Psychological strategy, political and information warfare, uh, the, the methods which uh, a, a, a Russian general recently and uh, 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 joined us to pay a little bit more close attention to these things. Ironically enough, since they are, the Russians are using them against us in some different ways. But uh, 
He said, don't you Americans know that this is how you bring down, uh, this is how you bring down governments, how you bring about regime change? Well, if anybody understands that dimension of statecraft, it is Greg. And, uh, and, and here, he's here today to talk about his new book, Sovereignty in the 21st Century and the Crisis for Identity, Cultures, Nation States, and Civilizations. You, ladies and gentlemen, are going to have a treat in hearing from a really integrated strategic thinker. Greg, we're honored to have you here. Thanks very much, John. And I must say that uh, I, would, I was going to say it's a mutual admiration society, but I think my admiration began before I even met John, uh, after I met his father at the uh, University of California in Berkeley, where he, uh, he was renowned for his skills, particularly, I think, in Middle Eastern areas. Uh, but uh, also seeing the work that John did uh, at the National Security Council to bring about the end of the Cold War through the adoption of psychological st strategic mechanisms was, was really profoundly impressive. So I'm really honored to be here at Institute of World Politics uh, to contribute what I can. And uh, we are, in fact, present uh, at the tearing down and rebuilding of the global strategic architecture. We've already ventured into an era of great change. It's a time of opportunity, chaos, loss and hope. No amount of wishing will make tomorrow's world resemble yesterday's in more than passing ways. And yet what's striking about the coming era is that it will see those societies succeed which turn most deeply and strongly to their innate historical sense of identity, to their innermost sense of themselves and their relationship to their land. So we have since 1990 begun to see a return to geopolitics. Those societies which cling merely to the immediate past, the past of the recent few decades, will be those which prosper least, if they survive at all. What we're witnessing is a tsunami of human urges toward sovereignty. It's a revival in some senses, an extremely new interpretation of identity in other ways. And it's happening for historically logical reasons, long in the making. I'll attempt to explain in what little time we have today, because what we are being faced with today is not merely a choice between urbanist, global utopianism on the one hand and a nationalist view of sovereignty on the other. The changes, in fact, are being wrought by mass population trends over which no single society or nation state has any fundamental control. So the choices we have are whether we refuse to acknowledge this tsunami, whether we find new uh, ways to protect ourselves against it, or whether we take advantage of it. In the past few months, we've seen the People's Republic of China's leaders call for their defense forces to prepare for war with the United States. Xi Jinping himself has declared the beginning of a new 30 years war between the PRC and the US to culminate with what Beijing calls its global hegemony by 2049. Part of this is possible because the Communist Party of China, the CPC under Xi since 2012, has discovered the path to equating and embedding the CPC ideology with the ancient history of China and with Chinese nationalism. And this is a very new phenomenon. And as my colleague Joseph Badansky has noted, like the original 30 years war, the current war would end as far as Beijing is concerned 
with the emergence of a new world order, a new piece of Westphalia. President Xi knew that he had to break cover and brace the PRC for confrontation with the US once President Donald Trump was elected in November 2016, because that marked the end uh, of the decade or more of, uh, of US uh, retraction from the global strategic environment. Xi's great weapon, perhaps his only weapon, has been to galvanize the PRC around a nationalism which the Communist Party of China had so vehemently opposed since its foundation in the 1920s and for most of its existence. But what Xi has begun to bring into focus in 2018 is what the Russian people did in 1990 when they finally threw off the seven decades of the yoke of Soviet, Soviet urban globalism and what so many other societies are now doing. They are rediscovering that sovereignty is the key to galvanizing a society for its own survival. And yet sovereignty is a word we've hardly heard these past seven decades since the end of World War II. Still, it's the driver of our tomorrow. President Donald Trump in his second address to the UN General Assembly on September the 25th made a strenuous case for the doctrine and concept of sovereignty, not just for the US, but as a right for all nation states. It's highly significant that few people today even com comprehend the concept of sovereignty. The confused media coverage of Trump's speech reflected that reality because sovereignty and nationalism had been erased from our lexicon of the past seven decades or so. So too is our understanding of even the meaning of the basic terms of democracy, nationalism, republicanism, even monarchy. President Trump's reiteration of the US case was an indication of the global momentum towards sovereignty and against the 70 year or more tide we have witnessed of the erosion of sovereignty and sovereign rights and duties of nation states. So what is it? What is sovereignty? Sovereignty is a value. It's a quality. It fluctuates and it's relative. It describes the place of the nation state and the individual in their broader context. The identity and prestige which societies and individuals achieve determines the degree of their sovereignty and therefore how well they can control their survival and well-being. It is and must be a never-ending quest, for loss of sovereignty is loss of self. Dr. Stefan Personi, who has been described as the greatest strategic philosopher of the 20th century, said, prestige is the credit rating of nations, and sovereignty is prestige incarnate, prestige made flesh and blood. Sovereignty is a framework which is rooted in the emotions and psychology of societies. It may be psychological, but yet it has direct, tangible outcomes. And we vitiate our sovereignty when, as a, as a society, we defer to another within an alliance or a confederation, or even when we defer to an opponent. We diminish it when we allow our currency and economy to become dependent on the currency or economy of another. So sovereignty is always qualified to some degree, even for the mightiest of nations and individuals. Donald Trump invoked the word sovereignty 19 times in his inaugural speech to the UN General Assembly on September the 19th, 2017. His theme, of course, was the reclamation of US sovereignty. His predecessor, President Barack Obama, in his final speech to the UN General Assembly on September the 20th, 2016, devoted the entirety of his talk in contradistinction to stressing the need for globalism and for a repudiation of sovereignty. Nothing could have contrasted the fundamental difference between those successive US leaders more profoundly 
nor the different ages they represented. Yet the importance of these stark, mutually hostile views of where the US and the world should or will be travel, traveling uh, went unremarked by the urban media. And when I say that these diverging views represented different ages, it's important to note that the revival and assertion of the need for sovereignty is very much the new age, the age of our immediate future. The age of globalism, anti-sovereignty, is the age of our immediate past, whether we like it or not. That's not to say that the age of globalism will not come again. Of course it will. All patterns of human social behavior are cyclical. But right now we're moving into an age which demands a reinforcement of sovereignty by most societies. And this is because a reversion to social identity based around history and geography and therefore beliefs is a normal reaction to chaos, uncertainty and threat. And we're in a world in which populations are transforming in numbers, nature, movement and condition. And nothing could be more challenging to societies and to individuals than this. So understanding the new strategic context enables us to respond appropriately. And this context is, as I said, beginning to sweep over us like a tsunami, particularly with regard to those things, the size, movement and condition of human numbers. Later historians may view this period as a crumbling and subsequent collapse of Western civilization. However, we're not exactly sure what truly defines Western civilization. We are certainly at least witnessing a transformation of what we have known. So it's a chronic metamorphosis, a reorganization of entire societies. And we've seen it before in human history, from the end of the globalized world of the 12th century BC, when almost all of the great nations of the Eastern Mediterranean, the Middle East, from Egypt up to Persia and the Hittite Empire in what's now Turkey, along with the kingdoms of Mycenae, Canaan, Cyprus, then known as Alashia, Babylonia and so on, suddenly collapsed or contracted, seemingly without warning. Even the names of many of the kingdoms and civilizations of that era have been obliterated from our current knowledge. We saw in a following era the collapse of the Hellenic city-states with their absorption into the Alexandrian Greek civilization and then its collapse or retrenchment within a couple of generations by about 323 BC with the death of Alexander the Great. We saw it with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the late 5th century and with the collapse in the 13th century of the great uh, Mongol Eurasian empires which Chinggis Khan begat and with the collapse of the Indus Valley civilizations, the Mayans, the Incas and so on in various places and stages of, of human societies. Of course there are variations to the thing, but there are recognizable patterns as to how civilization, uh, civilizational collapse occurs and how human societies subsequently regroup and rebuild themselves. I started to describe this process uh, of transformation first in a 2012 book called Uncivilization, Urban Geopolitics in the Time of Chaos, as I was looking for a really optimistic title. Uh, and of course we discuss it more in the book we're talking about today, Sovereignty in the 21st Century. Essentially, civilizations have predictable life cycles, like all living organisms. Cultures may endure and mutate indefinitely, but civilizations are just collections of individual human organisms, human beings, who cannot live except in organized bodies. We're the particles of a greater entity, an entity which has a predictable path of evolutionary development to include maturity and a sclerotic descent 
into inefficiency and ultimately to vulnerability and death. And we know that civilizations generally tend to last on average around 250 years, although history also shows us that they can be revitalized. The Roman Republic's collapse was reborn as the Roman Empire and it grew again to full term. So cultures though, survived within our DNA. Instincts towards our collective action remain as part of our fundamental requirement to survive and reproduce. Societies like all organic matter transform, burying and protecting their historical tendencies deeper and deeper within their core, as if storing them for a bleak winter. And it may be that we're in for a bleak winter, and we're certainly now in the process of transforming rapidly. And some of this transformation involves the eruption within societies of those historical allegiances with long thought buried by events. This is a pattern of humanity. But we need to see the larger and longer term patterns to truly comprehend the short term challenges. To fail to understand the broader context would mean that we are left merely to react to events that we haven't foreseen. Reaction, of course, is not leadership. Reaction is tactical. Leadership, on the other hand, always comprehends context. Action in the knowledge of context is the function of leadership and can, of course, lead to success. Reaction is either the losing hand or merely the hand of compensatory management. Leadership significantly is about the initiation of disruption or disruptive patterns. Management is about process and process is usually about the management of decline. So with that preamble, whence have we come and where are we now marching? Well, the last industrial revolution led us through a 20th century of great upheaval of violence and technological progress in its first half to an unprecedented wealth, health and growth in the second half. It was the incredible momentum of technological, scientific and supply chain development which saw the Allied victory of World War II transform the world. It also saw the start of a global scattering of human societies from a relatively controlled population spread until that time. We saw human population numbers grow from two and a half billion in 1950 to seven and a half billion today. And the concurrent growth in per capita wealth more evenly spread than ever before. We saw also a concurrent growth in human average caloric intake, accompanying and supporting major improvements in healthcare and therefore in human longevity and improved live birth rates. So we saw a 70 year period of growth in literally everything transforming our economic models to become entirely dependent on constantly increasing scale. We became increasingly dependent on abstract currency formats, such as credit in its multiplicity of variations to fund that growth. So human growth was good for, if nothing else, the creation of constantly expanding markets. The most valuable service a human could perform in such circumstances, apart from reproducing, was merely to consume. Well, we kept consuming, all right, but we've actually failed to keep reproducing. The baby boom generation has not replaced itself, and it's now disappearing. The human population growth trend in many parts of the world is collapsing for the time being. In a few areas, in Africa and India, the growth rate is reaching, approaching apogee before those areas too go into population decline. So this massive transformation from a world of growing human numbers one of declining human numbers will totally change our economic models and therefore our security models. For the time being, the population reversal is disguised and confused by the continued urbanization of rural peoples. 
such as any of them left, and by the rise of transnational migration, both legal and illegal, as old borders crumble. Well, the combination of wealth and urbanization has played a critical role in ending the population rise. Apart from the reality that urban societies naturally reduce their reproductive rates, whether in the industrial world or in India or in Africa, they also create new forms of medical problems because of sedentary lifestyles. A report published in January the 18th, uh, 2017 issue of Clinical Diabetes and Endocrinology carried a report which I'm sure you saw, uh, Diabetes and its Drivers, the Largest Epidemic in Human History? The author, Paul Simmons, said that he felt that type 2 diabetes was already a much bigger epidemic and pandemic than the Black Death, which killed as much as 20% of the global population in the 14th century. In fact, it probably killed more than half of the Eurasian population. Diabetes, in fact, has become a pandemic. 151 million people suffered from it in 2000. Now it's close to a half billion, with another 380 million people around the world in risk, at risk of imminent contraction. And this is just one of the urban-centric diseases, largely stress-related diseases, which have accompanied global urbanization. And today, more than 55, uh, approximately 55% of the world's population are urbanized. And of course, 82% of the US population is urbanized. So apart from acting as an accelerant to population decline caused by lower fertility of the baby boom generation, it's these healthcare issues which are beginning also to erode life expectancy among certain sectors of society. And all of this is transforming our economic framework. But particularly, what's going to happen is that it will result in a lower demand for property, which will emerge over the coming decades when the population decline finally overtakes urbanization and inward migration. So we're going to be forced to find new ways of making our societies viable, to find new ways to think about security. Remember that the waves of natural and man-made factors also influenced the then civilized world of the early 12th century BC. And economic drivers then were a factor in both the power and the precariousness of societies at that time. Today, one of the factors we must consider is the decline in the discovery or creation of new disruptive technologies over the past decade or so. And this is going to worsen as the economic pressures compound. For now, there's a pickup in the US economy, of course, and in some aspects of US R&D funding. But many of the other economies in Europe, the PRC, Japan, and Australasia, are essentially flat. We began some years ago drifting toward a decline in pure scientific research and more toward research which merely exploited earlier breakthroughs. This was definitely a sign that the great Cold War economic growth could not be sustained for long. So the signs of change are all around, as they were with the collapse of the globalized world of 3,200 years ago. But nobody pays attention to them. Archaeologists continue to unearth the clay tablets uh, of correspondence from right up to the very days before the great capitals collapsed in the 12th century BC, in which the merchants and leaders alike failed to comprehend their imminent demise. In our own lives, we've witnessed three decades of transformation, plenty of time, since the end of the Cold War, during which the signs of the transformation of the global strategic architecture were becoming evident. Most of us have failed to comprehend the passing of an entire age. I said in the 1990s that nation-states which reverted rapidly and unflinchingly to their nationalism, their national identity, would be best prepared to weather change. 
We've seen the past three decades in which the entire West has spent its so-called peace dividend on self-indulgence, while only a few major states focused on their sovereignty and on their national interests. And they were the People's Republic of China in particular, and the Russian Federation. Both recognized that at the end of traditional communism, they needed to regroup around national identity, and their peoples rushed towards it and embraced it. And the rest of the world has begun to follow suit. The nationalist voting patterns in the United Kingdom with Brexit, in Austria, Hungary, and Italy, the secessionism based around Catalan identity in Spain, the Trump revolution in the US, the revival of the great historical identities of Egypt, uh, Ethiopia, and Iran, and even the recent elections in Brazil are evidence of where the world is moving. Even those with fairly recent identities, such as Turkey and Croatia, have invented a mythical national identity around which to rally. Those who persist in open borders and the power of today's megacity states will see the shadow of Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, sweeping away the city-states of Hellas. The shadow of Duke Valentinois, Cesare Borgia, Machiavelli's prince, sweeping away the city-states of the Italian peninsula. The global strategic architecture began to change as we knew it must with the end of the Cold War in 1990-91. That change is gaining momentum but there's no inevitability as to its specific direction. The growth of the People's Republic of China as a global strategic power is indeed gathering pace, but there's no inevitability that it's going to reach the goal which its present leadership sees for it. The PRC is facing its own population crisis, not only because of the end of its own baby boom generation, but because of its urban-oriented diseases, and particularly diabetes, which are statistically much higher than in Western industrial countries and because of China's endemic shortage of water, especially to meet the heightened demands of urban societies, and because of the pollution of its agricultural lands and its agricultural water table, making food importation for China a massive narcotic dependency, making China more intensely vulnerable uh, even than Rome was at the height of its foreign food dependencies. Similarly, though, to believe in the linear decline of the US as a strategic power is also to ignore history. History tells us that nothing is linear, but the patterns of societal cycles are as familiar as the patterns of individual life cycles. And within these individual and collective life cycles, we do retain a panoply of options. Our operating context is, as I kept said, within a state of perpetual movement. And if our context changes, then so too should our policies. Political realities, economic frameworks, even currencies, social gathering patterns and technologies are all in the process of change. So why should we expect our policies to remain unchanged? We saw the past century driving most societies further toward collective behaviour with increasing um, erosion, particularly during those past 70 years or so, of the concept of national sovereignty. Supranational entities of collective authority grew ever larger. But this concept also began to peak at the same time that the global population growth curve also began to reach apogee. In other words, in the past decade or so. So those nation states which have retained cohesion and authority have done so by this conscious reversion to strong national identity and in fact to an authoritarianism which may spell the end of a century or so in which the world has experimented with its present approach to democracy, expressed solely as a ballot box framework. We have witnessed democracy 
degrade as a concept into a transactional, materialistic, short-term bargain between electors and elected, which is what's making democracy so difficult to, to manage at this stage. The same, um, the, the same century, this past century, also saw the world move beyond the age of reason and science, the Enlightenment, back to a world which is fundamentally belief-driven. This, of course, reinforces ignorance, given that entrenched beliefs are among the greatest inhibitors of innovative thinking. We forget that belief is not knowledge, still less necessarily is it wisdom, but it's no accident that human society goes through these cycles dominated by either fact-based or belief-based functioning. Yet it's human belief patterns which tend to be what save societies, ironically. Fear of the unknown creates political correctness, which is the human mechanism by which we circle the wagons, keeping threats at bay, keeping foreigners and non-believers out. But beliefs keep us together, keep us optimistic or fearful when we need to be, and help perpetuate our imperative to reproduce. And uh, beliefs tend to offset the nihilism of a total reliance on science. Human progress is always hallmarked by a fine partnership of beliefs, which include the foundations of identity, security, and self-confidence. Uh, those beliefs couple, uh, balanced with practical scientific capabilities. So this is the delicately balanced tension between belief and knowledge. But right now, as economic and political uncertainty accelerate, we find that knowledge declines as a proportion of our decision-making matrix. The future is uncertain, so we call on the past for guidance. <coughs> And we do this for the most part unconsciously. We fall back on beliefs. And some of those beliefs are of fairly recent inculcation, uh, like human-induced client change, which has become a belief pattern rather than a knowledge pattern. Some beliefs are uh, deeply rooted in our language, our sense of identity, and our mythology. We draw upon epic sagas to reaffirm our right to survival and our historical ability to dominate our environment. We see now, as the global architecture of the 20th century disappears, the historically rooted belief of most Chinese people, regardless of their cultural origins among the Han or the Manchu or the Mongol or Turkic peoples, that they must seize their opportunity anew to revive not only their glory, but their ability to determine their own uh, fate. This is not the Communist Party of China talking. The Communist leadership is merely riding this wave and this opportunity, which is why the ideology under Xi is changing. We saw since the collapse in April this year of the communist-based Ethiopian government, the massive momentum uh, to regain their sense of historical identity and special place in history of Ethiopian peoples from more than 60 ethnic groups. This represents a dramatic reversal of four decades of attempts to eradicate in the Ethiopian peoples all sense of their three millennia of unique identity, their Solomonic identity. The surge of Ethiopian identity is currently transforming the strategic destiny of the entire Red Sea and Horn of Africa region. It's, and this, as a result, of course, impacts one of the most important trade routes in the world. Uh, not only that, it also has transformed the whole religious equation in, in Africa. We've also seen the transformation in the last few years of Egypt back to its uh, sense of a great historical identity. And it's not surprising that these resurgences of identity consciousness, consciousness occur and motivate populations 
at times of great threat and hardship. This reversion to deep, often mythical historical identities occurring too in Europe, as the promise of the European Union has given way to the economic hardships and the loss of identity which resulted after the European promise peaked. We've seen the reversion to what the media is calling nationalism throughout much of Europe in the wake not only of the economic difficulties of the EU, but also the post-Cold War decline of global dominance by the US, the rise of the challenge of the PRC, the uncertainties as to the economic future of the dollar and the euro, and the withdrawal of the US itself from physical engagement in much of Europe. You can be sure that in many areas around the world, this flight to deeply ingrained social identity will lead to an increasing identification with traditional forms of social hierarchy. It's happening well and truly in places like Canada and places like Africa. So monarchies where they have an historical root in societies will once again start to flourish, except in Saudi Arabia perhaps. Uh, as economic and currency uncertainties rise, so do individual traders move to hedge their dependency on currencies and credit systems which had for a time seemed limitless. Moving from trust in the US dollar to trust in the PRC's renminbi, however, may be a difficult leap just right just now. But we have to bear in mind that the dollar itself only gained dominance during the past half century or so when the pound sterling resiled from its global dominance and was replaced by firstly a basket of currencies and then on which trade was negotiated and then was replaced by the dollar. But all dogs and dollars have their day. But we may not yet be ready for dependence totally on the renminbi. In a world in which the universality of a currency cannot for now be taken for granted, trading nations immediately begin reverting to bilateral trading balances. We tend to revert to trade which is based on binary partnerships, often reduced in essence to barter trade. So a reversion to national interests is not only natural but inevitable during a period such as we're now entering. And if we are forced to look to our national assets and therefore to defend them more directly, then our very recent and very, very brief, fragile period of the so-called rules-based global order, then what we're looking at is the resurrection of our understanding of sovereignty. Sovereignty and identity are natural partners. They naturally assume primacy in times of stress or threat. Those still dreaming of the immediate past, that golden half-century we enjoyed in, with the growth of, in almost everything, but most of all in the growth in hubris, decry what they call the rise of populism and nationalism. But these phenomena are, phenomena are the natural response to transformations in the global economic and strategic architecture. We forget that all politics is populist. No politician can get honestly elected without appeal to the lowest common denominator in the electorate, and yet we keep lowering that, that common denominator. The present cyclical reversion to national interests, most dramatically evidenced in the PRC and Russia, is a process which begins to overturn the century we have seen of democracy expressed through that rigid ballot box process. What we think of democracy today is not what we thought of it 50 years ago or a century ago. Democracy itself is expressed in fashions which are themselves cyclical. Some of the patterns of democracy used today were evidenced in the Hellenic city-states of the Iron Age. And even then, Plato said that such forms of democracy would rapidly evolve into ochlocracy, mob rule, as they have done even in the past century and particularly in the past decade. 
the essence of democracy is not its expression solely through a ballot box choice, but rather through the innate sense of self-reliance and self-assertion of an individual's control over his own fate. Individual sovereignty is how each of us forms a contract with a larger society. It is, as Rousseau expressed it, the social contract which is most fluidly, fluidly represented between governed and governor. Most of this contract is implicit in the human need for cooperation in order to survive and reproduce, and it's also implicit in the whole way in which the social hierarchy works. It's the agreement to, to assign roles to members of society in order to make society function viably. What we're now seeing is a reversion in many areas of the world to that implicit sense of the assertion by individuals and society of the defense of their own survival. So we're now re-evaluating things and should be re-evaluating things, such as the basic frameworks of our social governance that we've taken for granted for the past century or two. We now are in a position to carry ourselves into the future. We carry all the lessons and experiences of our ancestors from whom we cannot escape and who define us and give us the comfort of familiarity and purpose as we move along new paths. We are all sovereign and we determine by our actions the degree of sovereign control we can ensure for our society and that, so that it may in turn give us the protection and perpetuation we need. So this is a rare moment in history that we can be so conscious of the power of sovereignty and it's a moment of great possibilities. I hope that uh, gives us a framework where we can discuss maybe some current issues which I'm happy to, to address. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, John.